chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing in Mark. We're looking at uh, chapter 3 here, and I just kind of want to talk a little and recap a little bit about some of the things that have gone on, because um, the Gospels are not a smattering of stories and little things that are just kind of put together without a theme. And as we've been looking at Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Mark so far, there's a theme that's coming out, right? Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to know what I'm about, if you want to understand why I'm here, you need to follow me. You need to go with me. And so Jesus, you know, encounters a man with a shriveled hand, and he heals his hand, and he's revealing about his kingdom that it's a place where sickness will be pushed back. And then there are demons that Jesus encounters, impure spirits, and he casts them out. There's all these examples of Jesus going about preaching this message that God wants to be known, that he has this message of grace, that he's pushing back the darkness, and we come to this moment right here, very early in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, where people are deciding, what do we really think about who Jesus is? We understand who he is, but we're not sure we embrace who he is. And there's a difference between understanding who Jesus is and embracing him. Because what Jesus is really pushing back on is their fundamental understanding of how do you know God? What does it mean to follow him? You know, what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be unrighteous? You know, we've talked about this in the series so far, but it's essentially a question people ask today about what does it mean to be a good person? Like, what does it mean to be a good person? David Brooks um, wrote in a New York Times piece uh, an article about what is a good person? And, and he gave a couple of ideas. He said a good person is someone who listens well. They seem deeply good. They make you feel funny. They make you feel valued. And the Huffington Post quickly uh, posted an article that set, asked readers to reply to the question of, what does it mean to be a good person? And these are some of the things they said. One person said, doing the right thing even when no one else is watching. Another said, being kind. Everything else seems unimportant. A third person said, a good person values others at least as much as they value themselves. And we're getting somewhere there. 
And then another person said, a good person is a person who simply cares. Now, there's a lot of good things about those statements, but none of them are really sufficient when we talk about a message that can change the world or a message that can really minister to you in your deep times of need or in your struggles, a message that can be with you when you're sick and ill or um, when you're facing something really difficult. Like, we need a message that's more than saying a good person is just being a person who cares about people. That's true, but there's more. Um, You know, do we really understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to? Do we know what it means to embrace what he's calling us to? The Barna Institute, which is a group that for the past 30 years has done um, surveys and research on Americans and what they believe about God. I'm going to read to you some of the results from that. They asked the question, what do you think about Jesus? These are some of the, some of the responses in their, their research pulled together. Number one, that the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. The vast majority. Most adults, not quite six and ten, believe actually that Jesus was God. Less than, 50, less than 52% believe he committed sins. So, you know, 48%. Six and ten say they may have made a commitment to Jesus. So the question of what does it really mean to understand who Jesus is, that, that's one question. But the bigger question, the greater question, the question that Jesus is having the crowds think about right now in this story, his mother and his brothers and his sisters think about right now, the teachers of the law, us the reader, the question he's asking us to consider is not just do you understand who I am, but are you embracing who I am? Are you living into the reality that I am the Lord of heaven and earth? Now, the elections are coming up. I know you know that. I'm going to make a prediction, you know, as a pastor. You ready? Somebody's going to win, and Jesus is going to be the king. And whoever wins, our Lord will still reign. The king of heaven and earth is not yielding his throne. Even here, you know, the people in this story, the Pharisees, the crowds, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters, um, if you would have told them, hey, Jesus says he's Lord, they would have said, that's really not relevant to the thing I'm thinking about right now. They would have said that. And when we talk about elections, when I tell you that the real comfort you need to derive um, from is that Jesus is going to be king, the thing in you that tells you it's insignificant, it's precisely the same thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the people that are there listening to Jesus are struggling with to believe that Jesus' message is not just something to understand, but when you embrace it, it changes everything. Jesus is the king. What does it really mean to embrace him? What does it really mean to follow him? You know, everybody, uh, the reality, and you see this in the story here, everybody lives kind of in the context of a divided kingdom of the heart. We have things we know that God says to be true, and then we struggle to believe them. We have things we know God calls us to, and we struggle to follow them. Where do you see the divided kingdom rearing its head in your life? Maybe it's the divided kingdom of the mind. Maybe you've discovered inconsistencies in your thinking. Join the club. We all struggle. Jesus is king. Maybe you live in a divided kingdom of the heart. You know what you should desire, and yet you still struggle with desiring things that you know are not good. Jesus is the king. Maybe it's that you live in a divided kingdom of the feet, right? That you know what's best and let you, you struggle to actually live it out. Jesus is the king. What Jesus is showing us over and over again is this longing within you to know God, this longing within you to actually live in light of who He is, the desire to experience real intimacy and peace with God, that desire within you, He's in the process of bringing that into reality because Jesus is the King of a united kingdom, 
where he yields none of his power to anyone, as we'll see in this story. So let's walk through some of this together. What happens here? Jesus has to face several critical groups of what he's doing. They're critical of what he's doing. They're critical of what he's saying. He has to face his family, and his family misunderstands him. Do you know what it's like to be misunderstood by your family? Your answer is no if you have no family. Like, we all misunderstand one another. And one of my favorite things to do, and I, you know, Jamie's sitting here, so she knows I try to do this, um, is any time she asks me something and I don't feel like I understand, I try to say it back. And you know what happens most of the time? That's not what I'm saying. I'm like, okay, let's try again, right? We struggle to understand one another. You know, we, we struggle to really even hear what each other is saying at times. Jesus has to face his family. Look at verse 20. Jesus enters a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. There's nothing lost in the translation here. They're saying, Jesus, is he's lost it, guys. Like, we sort of tolerated him a little bit, but now... The teachers of the law have come down. They are the scholars. They are the pastor of pastors. They're the most important people in the religious community. They've come down, and we've got to head over there. Lots of motivations for that. One is they're probably a little embarrassed, right? He's drawing a lot of attention to himself. Joseph is gone. His dad is gone. The uncles are there. The family is there. And they're all like, hey, this is going to be really embarrassing for us all. He had this amazing amazing carpentry thing going. Everybody wants his tables and his chairs. They're made perfectly right? They're perfect. No one can compete with his craftsmanship. And now he's ruining it. So they're a little embarrassed. They're also trying to protect him because what he's seeing, and this is good for us to hear, what Jesus is saying is life-changing. It changes everything. You hear this earlier in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says, you think you understand the Sabbath? You don't. You think you understand what it means to know God? You're missing it. You want to know what it means to follow him? You want to know what it means to know him? Walk with me. Let me show you. Let me reveal to you the kingdom. His family is concerned for him. They're fearful for sure. Um, You know, we read in the scriptures in the prophet Isaiah that his own would not receive him. That's what's happening. Do you see this? What Jesus is really about is becoming clear. And how are people responding? They're freaking out. His own mother is like, my boy's gone crazy. He's lost his mind. You know, verse 21, um, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Just imagine, Jesus, remember, he's fully human. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like for even his parents to go, I just want to crawl in a hole when someone mentions my son's name right now. That's what Jesus is enduring. You know, even those folks who are with him, as we read here, are trying to figure out if they're really with him. Do they understand who Jesus is? They're beginning to. Do they embrace who Jesus is? They're they're starting to question that. You know, part of what Jesus is reminding us of here is that what he's interested in doing is actually changing the world around us. Where does he want to change the world? Well, where are you? You know, is your neighborhood just a place where you live or is it a place you want to see Jesus impact and change? Your family, you know? Um, Your family is a place where Jesus wants to see the reality of his word come in, impact, and change. In your workplace, with your friends, wherever you interact with image bearers, that's where Jesus wants this message, which needs to be understood, yes, but embraced in a greater way with the heart, soul, mind, and strength 
Because in so doing, you find resurrection. You find life. So Jesus faces his family. He faces the crowds. Now, they're kind of viewing Jesus like a rock star. And I don't know if you've ever seen a rock star. I've seen a few. I've never been able to get close because everybody else gets there first. Right? They're following Jesus because what he's doing, even the rumors of it, people are saying, wow, this is amazing. This is noteworthy. So his family's kind of you know, rejecting him. The crowds are super interested. A lot of them are definitely skeptical and concerned. They're wondering what is up with this. And then Jesus faces the community leaders. He experiences not just this dissonance with his family and not with the crowd, but with the most respected teachers of their religious experience, the teachers of the law. We read here they come down from Jerusalem, right? They've sent out the main dudes to talk to Jesus because what he's saying is so transformative. And they confront him openly and thoroughly. Right out in the open, they make, they make this accusation that Jesus is the spawn of the devil. He is the devil himself. They're calling him out for that. Why are they doing that? Because what Jesus is saying, if it's true, they have no understanding really of who God is. They're like, wait a minute. This is too impactful. What he's saying is like, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That means he's God. Everyone is understanding that Jesus is saying he's God, like most people in America. But to really embrace him, that's something else. They, they confront him in the open. They confront him thoroughly. They attack him spiritually. They attack him emotionally. This is going to ostracize him. Their goal was for to say, to say these things, that you are Beelzebub, to say he's casting out demons in that name, so that he would be ostracized and minimized. That was their goal. Well, the king of heaven and earth wasn't having any of that. So what does he do? He says, gather around everybody. Let me tell you a story. And they all come to listen. To be clear, what Jesus is doing here makes him, as you know, C.S. Lewis in his sort of rhetorical trilemma that he talks about, he's either a liar or a lord or a lunatic. Let me read this to you. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, be about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus comes and says, listen, the message I'm telling you changes everything. I'm either lying to you, I'm from the evil one, or I am sent by God himself as the Messiah and Savior of the world. Follow me. Learn about this. And we need to ask ourselves that same question. Do we see Jesus kind of like the crowd? It's interesting. It's like a rock star. I'm going to move in. I'm going to observe. I'm going to kind of understand who he is. It's not enough. Do we see Jesus like his family did? Listen, if you've been following Jesus long enough, you've actually run through this gamut. I have. You'll, you'll run through this. 
being interested in Jesus because of these things he's done, at times thinking, you know, I'm struggling to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, is it true? Especially when we're suffering, we really struggle to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that his power is sufficient for us. That the fact we have an election next week, the fact that he is the king of heaven and earth, changes our ultimate perspective on those things. And yet, it does. Jesus says, if the kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. That makes sense, right? If the kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. A, a kingdom attacking itself is not a good kingdom at all. And I thought of the perfect illustration of this as I was watching The Office, right? Any Office fans? You remember that scene in that one episode where Dwight is giving an update on the changes in martial arts this year? Jim comments that martial arts are kind of an ancient thing and there's not like really updates all the time, but we're going to go ahead and let Dwight do that each year. And what happens? Dwight tries to paint the scenario. You're in a subway, right? And the triads are about to attack you. And so you should do, and he shows and demonstrates, a throat punch. And he's kind of, he says, Kevin, come here, let me show you. And Jim says, I think wisely, you know what, Dwight? The most worthy opponent of you is you. And Dwight says, that's correct, unless there happens to be measles present. Okay? So then he proceeds to demonstrate how he would defend himself against himself if it was a triad attacking him, and he's defending himself and starts punching himself and wrapping his arms around himself, and he's about to choke himself out. And um, Jim says, oh, my goodness, he's got you. And Dwight says, Dwight says, never forget, Jim, we always have the element of surprise, and he punches himself really hard. It's ridiculous. It's hilarious because it is so absurd to think that Dwight can defeat Dwight when he's battling himself. There is no element of surprise. It's one person. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of casting out demons in the name of Satan, of casting out demon, demons in the name of Beelzebub, this combination of the god Baal and then Lord of the, of the demons or Lord of the flies almost. And they're saying, you're Beelzebub. You are evil incarnate. You are the worst of the worst. Openly, in front of everyone, Jesus says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Guys, let's just use some logic. Like, how, if, if that's who I am, how can I do that? And, and they, you know, they don't really respond, of course, because their goal wasn't to actually have a discussion. It was to discredit and attack Jesus with an accusation. That's what they were trying to do to throw something out there that would totally discredit him so that everything he said would no longer matter. And Jesus, what does he do? He does a martial arts move with a parable, and no one knows what, what to do with it. Jesus says to them, if what you're saying is true, then why would I be teaching about the kingdom of God? If my goal is to bring pain and inflict evil, why would I heal a shriveled man's hand? If my goal is to push is to allow darkness to flourish, why do you find that everywhere I go, I push the darkness back? I put it back in its place. I cage it up, and I bring life and renewal and forgiveness. Why is it that sinners come to me and they want to have a relationship with God, and I heal them because I came to call sinners, not the righteous? Why am I doing all that if I'm evil? It's an absurd accusation. Jesus heals people, drives out demons. The demons obey him. What Jesus is doing is saying, I'm revealing a new kingdom. Who will be your king? Will your religion be your king for the Pharisees? For the family, will embarrassment or fear be your king? What will be your king? What does it mean for us to begin to say, okay, Jesus, 
if this is who you are, what does it mean for you to be our king? Let me give you something to think about. In James chapter 4, verse 6, James is quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, and he says this, God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. Just, just think about that for a second. That when the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, if you are humble, God is going to be gracious to you. Not maybe, God's going to be gracious to you. But if you ignore it, or if you cover it up, or you pretend like it's not real, the God of heaven and earth opposes you. Jesus is saying, look, I come to do something different. I come to reveal the kingdom of God. I come to reveal a place where darkness will have no power, shame will have no power, sin will have no power. I come to reveal the heart of God. For us as Christians, it's a good verse for us to memorize. God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. It's a good way to live. You know, today as I was driving into the, to church this morning, I had all the bikers in the woodlands. They decided to wait until I was leaving for church, and then they all rushed out in front of me, and I'm telling myself the whole time, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to, you know. Like, you know, it's little things and big things that can push us to consider, will I trust God in this or not? God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. So that's all happening. Jesus is communicating. And then what happens? Jesus hears in the background, hey, Jesus, your mom's here. Right? Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, verse 31. Then verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, a crowd is, the crowd is saying to him, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mothers and my brothers? And, who are my mothers and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is gathering a people around his message of grace. He's gathering his people around this message that pushes back the darkness. And he has been for thousands of years. Even as we hear this message this morning, it's meant for us to know that even Satan cannot push back, remove, destroy, take away from this message that Jesus as the king brings to us. Okay, so a few, a few reflections. Number one, this following Jesus thing, the idea of embracing Jesus, not just understanding him, is a life-altering event. So if you find that you can follow Jesus, but it doesn't apply in certain areas, you know, hear this. Who Jesus is saturates all of your life. Your thoughts, your heart, your mind, your actions, where you spend yourself, all of that is meant to have this lens over it that says, how is this moving towards Jesus' kingdom? Or how is it moving away from Jesus' kingdom? It's life-altering. Okay? Secondly, you need to really do more than just understand the message of Jesus. You need to embrace the message. So if you're sitting here thinking, I don't know what that means, you're in the right place. I'm going to talk about four different ways of thinking about what it means for us to begin to live into embracing Jesus. And I'm not telling you this because I figured it out and I do it perfectly. I'm telling you this because this is the daily Christian experience of choosing not just to understand who God is, but to embrace Him, because He is the King. And so one, it's a message that's greater than status. The message that Christ gives to us is greater than even status. We all like status. We appreciate status. You know when I really feel how much I like status? Whenever I'm falsely accused. You ever been falsely accused? 
You know, when I was 16 years old, I was driving my red Mustang through Mesquite, Texas, and I pulled up behind a, a van, and this guy jumped out of his van and ran towards my car and started pointing at me, took his fist, hit my Mustang's windshield, and it shattered it, and then got back in his car after pointing at me again and, and drove off. I had the kind of presence of mind to memorize his license plate. I called the police. They came and met with me. I went to the station the next day. I had to identify him in a lineup, and... Um, after he left, and I after they moved him out of the room, and I identified him, I said, why do you think he attacked me? He goes, oh, he thought you were a drug dealer. He thought you were a rival drug dealer. He recognized the car, and he thought that's who you were. And I told the officer, I don't, I don't know what disturbs me more, that he thought that's who I was or that I fit the part. <laughs> you know? I'd been falsely accused of being a drug dealer. I think I was on my way to work at an, a, a snow cone shop called Ice Delight that was in the same parking lot. <laughs> but for whatever reason... You know, I fit the part, and, and I got falsely accused, and it was scary for me. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He is being accused of being Satan. My guess is you haven't had that one yet. Even Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused. Your reputation will be maligned. You will be misunderstood. You know, you, you, will, you will experience... Um, things like that. And the thing that brings us encouragement and strength and hope is, is, wait a minute, my king is Jesus. My king is not my status. My king is Jesus. In verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now I'll get back to more on that in a second. But the first part of it I want you to hear is that people can be forgiven all their sins. Do you, do you hear that? It means that this is a message that is even more powerful than our sin. It's more powerful than anything else. It's a message that's greater than status because God gives us a new status. It's a message that's greater than the power of even other people who might make false accusations. Um, it's a message that's greater um, than the approval of others. Jesus even loses the approval of his family in this moment. His own mother. And let's be honest, remember what his mother went through. Dreams angels, her son disappearing when he was 12, right? Being in the temple. Like, who knows all the things Jesus did in front of his mother and his father? I'm sure his brothers were sick of it, you know? Why can't you be more like Jesus, you know, to his, to his, to his siblings? She had seen so much, and she has come to the determination, my son is crazy. She's forgotten. We all know what that's like. He had lost even that approval, and yet, Jesus approaches us and says, what I'm offering you is greater than a status of, of being known by other people. It's greater than any kind of power that's out there. It's greater than sin. It's greater than approval ratings. I am offering you access to my kingdom that brings life. That's what Jesus brings to us this morning. He offers us hope, a message that is meant to nourish us and increase our faith. To kind of camp on this for a second, the two elements of that statement that Jesus makes. One, he says, it's a message greater than all our sin. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. People can be forgiven all their sins. That's an incredible message of grace. When I was very young, I went to a 
a little store by my house called Mr. M's. It's kind of like a 7-Eleven. And I went into Mr. M's. My mom was there, and I asked her for some gum, and she said, you can't have any. And so back then, if you can believe this, kids, there was candy you could pay one penny for, and they would give you candy. So I got a piece of gum, and rather than pay for it, I just decided to eat it. I mean, it's there. I'm here. We ate it together. You know, I just ate the gum, and my mom was like, did you steal the gum? And I said, no, as I'm chewing it. No, I didn't steal the gum. Did you steal the gum? Did you steal the gum? So I swallowed it because I realized it was getting kind of like this was going to not go well. Eventually, she took me to the front, made me tell the guy all about it, and we left there, and she talked to me. And, and the thing that was hardest for me and hardest for her was just not being restored in relationship. I had allowed a lie to intersect my relationship with her. It's like I didn't really believe that um, forgiveness was possible. The shame was too much. Hear God's word. People can be forgiven all their sins, all of them. Now, this is a place where people who are struggling can come and hear about God's grace. This is a place where when you discover sin in other people's lives, this is a place where we believe the gospel for other people, that God is gracious, that God offers a way forward, that there's not condemnation. There's actually reconciliation and restoration that can happen because the cross is that big. God offers forgiveness. The second part of that statement, that there's one sin that can't be forgiven. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's kind of scary. Uh, what it's not is struggling with doubt. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Everybody goes through seasons of wondering if God is real and wondering if God is who he says he is. It's okay. God can handle that. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. It's not the outright denial of who Jesus is even. Rather, what Jesus is talking about is sort of the seriousness and the severity of a perpetual and continual life that disregards who he is. And the reason is, is because it leads to death. It leads to separation from God. It leads to a darkness that you could not even imagine. So Jesus says, don't blaspheme the Spirit. Don't ignore my word. Don't live continually and perpetually in opposition to who I am. Don't put yourself outside my kingdom. You don't want to be there. Rather, you want to be among the forgiven. You want to be among the humble. You want to be among the recipients of my grace and my mercy. Jesus is saying in this new kingdom that we're a part of, where forgiveness is accessible, this is the new status. We are family. We're brothers and sisters. We're united by our elder brother, Jesus Christ, that because of what he's done for us, he's able to enter into our lives and reshape our hearts. There actually becomes a family likeness among us. We begin to love what God loves. We begin to be interested in what God's interested in. We begin to pursue what God calls us to pursue. We begin to have faith together. We're in a church. We are going to have to express faith together if it's the kind of gospel that Jesus is calling us to not just understand, but to actually embrace. The good news is, is he's the king of heaven and earth. David writes this in Psalm 73, My flesh and my heart may fail. Your flesh and your heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the narrative that Jesus pushes back on when you feel your heart and your flesh failing. He is your portion forever. He is the king of heaven and earth. He pushes back darkness. And the more that we believe that together as people, the more we believe it individually, the family likeness of who Jesus is begins to more and more and more bubble up and present itself. And as a pastor, I've been a pastor 20 years now or whatever. I've seen it, and it's really beautiful, and I see it here in this place, and I long to see 
more of it because that's what God's interested in doing is making grace a place saturated by kingdom, power, grace. Life-altering and sustaining grace. Truth-bearing and life-giving grace. It's big and it's powerful and it's good and it's ours by faith. I think one of the most powerful things about who Jesus is, I'm about to be done. One of the most powerful things about who Jesus is is he doesn't approach us from on high and stay off and distant. He comes very close and he says, I know what it's like to experience a disapproval rating. I know what it's like for my parents to not understand and to deny me and say I'm crazy. I know what it's like for people who are respected, um, who are supposed to be there to guide us as a people, to abandon me and call me evil incarnate. I know it all. I understand. The God of heaven and earth is saying that to you, even this morning. I'll close with this illustration. I heard this story about Matthew McConaughey, and I went to the University of Texas, and so I've always been a fan of you know Matthew McConaughey or whatever. He's got some strange movies, but he's an interesting character. And he tells the story in this recent book he, he put out about looking for a retreat center. So there's all these retreat centers he can check out. There's one in Australia, New Zealand, England, amazing places, lots of spas, really cool stuff. And in typical McConaughey fashion, he finds one just outside of Santa Fe that he's interested in going to. And this is how you get there. You have to drive a four-wheel drive vehicle within to this dirt road and go as far as you're able. And that changes based on weather and on washouts and all sorts of things. And once you get there, you park your vehicle and you continue down the road. It could be 13 miles or more walk from where you leave your car to this monastery where there are no roads leading to it. And once you get there, which is what he did, you knock on the door. He knocked on the door and someone answered the door and opened it and said, hello, brother, come on in. And so Matthew goes inside and they say, you're staying with this man tonight because we're out of rooms. And so he goes into a room with a monk, a Buddhist monk, and the Buddhist monk lays on the ground and says, you can sleep in my bed. And so Matthew sleeps there. And then he wakes up the next morning. He's talking to the monk. And he says, hey, I really need to speak to somebody. I need, I, need, I need to confess some sins. I've got some things I've got to communicate. He said, yeah, let me introduce you to Brother Christian. It's a little generic, but, you know, whatever. He says, I'm going to introduce you to Brother Christian. And so he goes and introduces Matthew to Brother Christian. And Brother Christian says, I'm going to take you on a four-hour walk and you're going to tell me everything you're thinking, and you're going to keep telling me until we get back to the chapel. And so Matthew reports in, in this story um, that he confessed his sins for four hours and struggles he's had and things he's been dealing with, crying. He describes it as snot coming out of his mouth, like just complete weeping before this man. Gets back to the chapel. They're sitting there together. He looks up at the monk, and the monk is just staring at him. And he waits. And the monk finally leans forward and just says, Me too. You know, it's this idea that our struggles and our difficulties, all these things, when we feel like we're isolated, it's actually very destructive. That's how Satan works. He likes to separate us off, kind of get us all by ourselves, and then take us apart. And Jesus is saying, let me put it out there for you. Everyone can be forgiven for their sins. You can be renewed and restored. And my kingdom is so powerful that I will push back the darkness, not just out there, but in here. I will push back the darkness by the power of my word. That's the kind of kingdom I'm coming to build. You know, my prayer for you this week as you go about the week that God's called you to is maybe reread the gospel of Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3 and begin asking yourself, exercise that humility and that, that what we read in James and in Proverbs. Ask, ask this question, God, teach me who you are. Show me who you are. And try to put aside presumptions and assumptions and things you've thought about who he is and say, Jesus, I'm going to read your word. 
reflecting on the sermon from this week, who are you? What does it mean to not just understand you? Because it's not enough. The Pharisees understood Jesus very well. That's why they made those accusations. But what does it really mean for, you, for me to embrace you with my heart? Maybe it's in forgiveness or mercy or kindness. What does it mean for me to embrace you with my mind? Maybe it means I'm going to read Scripture more this week. I'm going to think more about who God is. Maybe it's to embrace who Jesus is with your actions, like to move towards someone or to seek how to bless another, to love another as God has loved you. The good news, as you pursue those things, they will not come up vain. They will not come up empty. God is interested in his kingdom taking shape and taking form right here in this church and in your life. Okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, we do give you thanks for these words and this story where we hear about Jesus and his speaking to the crowds, but also addressing the teachers of the law and speaking to his own family, his being misunderstood, his reputation being maligned, um, his intentions even being questioned. And yet what we see is that your grace through your son prevails that there is grace greater than all our sin, that there is grace greater than even the worst things this world has to offer because you are the king of heaven and earth. And so we put our hope in you and ask that you would increase our faith even as we celebrate the supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.